The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. All right, good morning, Bereans. I want to welcome you to uh, part three of our introduction. <laughs> this introduction for this book is going to be longer than this book, okay? <laughs> no, ho- hopefully this is the last introduction, and then we're going to actually start looking at the text next week. But we have been talking for the last couple weeks about the fact that you don't get to heaven because of what you do or don't do. You go to heaven because you believe in Yeshua. Salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. But every time I talk about the fact that good works are not necessary for salvation, every time I talk about the fact that a person is saved by what he believes, by his faith alone, not by what he does, James 2 always comes up. But what about James? Okay, listen, after today, I don't want to ever hear again, what about James? Okay, we're putting James to bed today, all right? This is it. So I don't want to hear that anymore, all right? So, so, so this morning, we're going to be looking at James 2 and see if we can figure out what exactly is James trying to tell us. See, the trouble with James starts in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that faith save him? Now, a literal Greek rendering of this verse would go like this. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Faith cannot save him, can it? See, this translation is based on the original Greek and is crucial to a correct interpretation. The form of the question that James asked, in the last part of the verse is one that expects a negative response. The expected answer from James' point of view would be, no, faith cannot save him. Now, I could show you 200 plus verses from the New Testament that talk about the fact that salvation is by faith apart from works. And as I got finished with the 200 verses, someone would say, But what about James? Somehow, some way, all the verses in the New Testament are wiped out by James chapter 2. It seems like James 2 is a trump card. You know, like people talk about, okay, salvation is by grace through faith, and people say, oh, what about James? James just wipes it all out. I mean, it wipes out everything Yeshua said. He wipes out everything Paul said. He wipes out everything that's in the New Testament because he's like the final say on it. Why? Where did James get all that authority? Where does one chapter wipe out everything else that the whole New Testament teaches? I just don't get how it's like, yeah, we saw all those 200-some verses, but no, James says this. Now, there's no doubt that these verses in James are some of the most difficult verses in the Bible. They're surrounded by a lot of confusion, Multiple interpretations. These verses in James cause Martin Luther to call James a right strawy epistle. <laughs> okay? He questioned its inclusion in the canon. 
Luther said, this book doesn't belong in the Bible. Now, Kelly Burks felt the same way. Uh, Last week, Mike Sullivan sent me a video link to a message that Kelly did back in December of 2013 entitled, Why the Church is Bound to Only One Baptism, Part 3. And in that video at the 38-minute mark, Kelly says this. He says, there is no such thing as justification by works. James was wrong. James got it wrong. I don't think that James should have ever been in the canon. I don't think it's inspired. Well, you know, if you're going to say James is wrong, you need to follow it with he doesn't belong in the canon, or else you've got a problem with inspiration, okay? (laughs) Okay, so, uh, but that was Kelly's take on it, you know, because it was like, this just seems so confusing. It seems to go against everything else. So we got Martin Luther and we got Kelly Burks feel that James is contradicting the biblical teaching of salvation by faith alone. And he seems to be contradicting the Reformation principle of sola fide, faith alone. Look at what James says in chapter 2. Can that faith save him? It's demanding a negative answer. Verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20, that faith apart from works is useless. And some translations there have dead instead of useless. Uh, Either one will really work. Verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, people, James, without a doubt, says works are necessary for salvation. Does that bother you? It should. It should, because that's what it says. Now, if you hold to the verbal inspiration of Scripture, if you believe the Bible is the Word of God, then you have to admit something is wrong here. Okay? Let me give you two choices. That's all you get. It's multiple choice. Okay? That makes it easier. Either Scripture contradicts itself. You don't, want, you don't like that one? Or we're interpreting something wrong. Now, What is the primary rule of hermeneutics? Okay, it's called the analogy of faith, or Scripture interprets Scripture, which means no Scripture can be rendered in such a way that it conflicts what is taught elsewhere in Scripture. In other words, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. It doesn't say somewhere that you're saved by grace through faith, and somewhere you're saved by works, and you go, well, it seems to say that. Okay, so we're going to go with door number two, all right? We're going to forget about Scripture contradicting Scripture because we don't believe that. So we're going to have to go with this idea that we are interpreting something wrong. I'm much more comfortable with that one. How about you? I'm going with B. James is not discussing a doctrine of salvation which is based on faith. James insists that works are necessary for salvation. Now, many interpreters have seen James as standing in opposition to the Pauline doctrine of justification by faith alone. I mean, your eyes are not open if you don't see that contradiction, all right? I'm sure you understand that. Look what Paul writes. Paul writes, we are justified by His grace as a gift. Now, what's interesting, what he does here, the word grace is haras, and the word gift is dorea. Dorea means for nothing, gratuitously or gift-wise. So he basically redoubles it here that says justification is all of God. It's a gift by His grace. All right, he's trying to stress that. 
through the redemption that is in Christ Yeshua. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So Paul says a man is justified by faith apart from works. Paul goes on to say, 4-5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Does that sound like it contradicts James 2.14? Yeah, it does. Look what he says in 4.5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. So yeah, that sounds like it's contradicting each other. Paul says it's all faith, but works play no part. Right? Look at uh, Romans 11.6. But if it is by grace, and we just saw from Romans that it's by grace, double grace. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Okay, you got that? Okay, grace and works are mutually exclusive. It's by grace and it's not by works. That's what he's saying here. Works play no part. Can you understand why people have a problem reconciling James and Paul? James says, faith alone cannot save. Paul says faith alone saves. So, you understand the problem. That's where we're going to start this morning. You do see a problem there, right? Martin Luther, using Romans, began the Reformation on the principle sola fide, faith alone. No wonder he called James a straw epistle. James clearly states that works are necessary for salvation. Now, many expositors have tried to harmonize James and Paul. Because, you know, we can't have Scripture contradicting each other, so let's figure out how to put these guys together. All harmonizations with the doctrine of sola fide are awkward and forced. Guthrie writes this, It may well be that James is correcting a misunderstanding of Paul. Does that bother you? Okay, if he's correcting Paul, then Paul's not inspired? Or, vice versa. Maybe Paul's correcting James. Well, that's better, right? But it cannot be said that James and Paul are contradicting each other. What is the difference? If one's correcting the other, the others, they're contradicting each other. He's saying one of these guys is wrong and the other straightening him out. I don't know how that makes anybody feel better. What about inspiration? Can an inspired writer be wrong and then another writer's got to straighten him out? The Bible, all of it, is God's inerrant word. Albert Barnes, commenting on James 2.14, writes this. He doubtless had in his eye those who abused the doctrine of justification by faith, by holding that good works are unnecessary to salvation, provided they maintain an orthodox belief. As this abuse properly existed in the time of the apostles, and as the Holy Ghost saw that there would be danger that in the latter times the great and glorious doctrine of justification by faith would be thus abused, it was important that the error should be rebuked and that the doctrine should be distinctly laid down that good works are necessary to salvation. Really, Barnes? That's what you're going to say? The apostles, therefore, in the question before us, implicitly asserts that faith would not profit at all unless accompanied with a holy life. And this doctrine he proceeds to illustrate in the following verses. So according to Mr. Barnes, we are saved by faith plus works, in other words, we got to earn our way to heaven by good works. Barnes' statement, faith would not profit at all unless accompanied with a holy life, is probably held by most church folks today. 
Most people believe that. Well, yeah, you've got to do this or you don't get in. Okay? John Piper writes this. Works of any kind are not acceptable in the moment of initial justification. Okay, he's trying to make that clear. You're saved, you know, works don't play a part, but, watch out for those buts, okay? But, when James affirms justification by works, he means that works are absolutely necessary in the ongoing life of a Christian. So the works are necessary to confirm and prove the reality of the faith which justifies. Now, my question to John would be, prove to who? Who do these works prove something to? To God? God didn't know He needed to see something in your life to know what's happening, right? Or prove to others? So I would interpret what Mr. Piper is saying, that works are not necessary to get you saved, but they're necessary to keep you saved. I got a problem, okay? He says they're absolutely necessary. So if you don't have these works, then you don't have a faith which justifies, which means works are necessary. Listen, if they're necessary at the beginning or the end, if they're necessary, they're necessary, okay? I would agree much more with John Stone who writes this, that faith can save a man and that nothing else can is written throughout the Scriptures as with a pencil of light. I agree wholeheartedly. The Scriptures clearly teach that salvation is by faith alone. Now because of the conflict between James and Paul, a deliberate deliberate effort has been made to avoid the impact of James 2.14 by Messing with the translation just a little bit, okay? So, if you got NIV, it says, Can such faith save you? Or if you have a New American or ESV, it says, Can that faith save you? And the indication here is that there's a kind of faith that doesn't save. And we talked about this last week. There are not different kinds of faith. There are only different objects of faith, all right? But see, translating it this way is an unjustified exaggeration of something in the Greek called the article of previous reference. And there's really nothing to commend that here. See, the article of previous reference says that since there's a definite article with the faith, ten piston, the faith, we can substitute words such as that faith or such faith. With abstract nouns like faith or love, the article is perfectly normal when the noun is used as a subject. Now, the construction of James 2.14 is identical to that found in James 1.4. And let steadfastness, in other words, they would translate this, let such steadfastness, let that steadfastness, which, because the article's here, it's the same construction that's found in 1 Corinthians. Let such love or that love. We don't translate it as that love or such love. Is patient? No. In James 2, the definite article also occurs with faith in verses 17, 18, 20, 22, 26. The attempt to single out 2.14 for specialized treatment carries its own refutation. Okay, you just don't pick out one verse and say, well, that just only means that here. So why do they try to change what James is saying? Well, they're trying to make James say that there's a certain kind of faith that doesn't save you. See, that way, okay, now he's not in conflict with Paul. Paul says faith saves, and James says, yeah, but there's a certain faith that doesn't save. But James' point is really clear. Faith alone cannot save. So it really doesn't work. Now, the question we have to ask is, did James really disagree with Paul on salvation being by grace through faith alone? I don't think he did. Notice what James wrote. 
James 1, 17 and 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or, sh- or due, shadow due to change. I got this memorized in other versions, so it kind of trips you up, you know. <clears throat> of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Many, many years ago, I taught through the book of James. And I was Arminian until I got to verse 18. And I'm studying, and it says, Of his own will be God he us. And I thought, Of his will? What about my will? And this launched me on a, and I'll never forget it. I mean, I can visualize that week in my mind the agony, the pain. I found myself under the bed saying the Greek alphabet. I was just going crazy, you know, because I'm moving from Arminianism to Calvinism and I'm fighting the whole way, you know, because I didn't believe in Calvinism. But I'm like, okay, James, of his own will? See, James sees the new birth as a sovereign act of God. It's God's will, not man's will. So, once I got through that verse, that was it for me in Arminianism, all right? So James and Paul are really in fundamental harmony about how eternal life is received. For both of them, it's a gift of God graciously and sovereignly bestowed. Well, what then does James mean in 2.14? How could he say this? Well, what we need to do here is apply another rule of hermeneutics, and the rule goes like this. Determine carefully the meaning of words. Does that make sense? I mean, we make sentences by words, and if you don't know what the words mean, you're going to be off here, right? All right, the Greek verb here, save, is sozo. It's used in 2.14 for save. Now this, listen, sozo has a very wide range of meanings, okay? When we see that word save, we automatically think eternal life. But sozo is more often used of Physical deliverance, physical healing, rescue from danger. And James, in writing along with the Old Testament wisdom literature, that's how it's used, to deliver from death. So we need to determine its meaning from the context. So how is James using sozo here? Well, to help us understand this, let's look at how else he uses it in the letter. Let's go to the back. James 5, 19 and 20. My brothers... If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, now that's encouraging because it tells me that we can help each other, right? Someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now here, the meaning of sozo is clear. It refers to preservation of physical life from death. The Greek expression used here, sozentensuke, is a standard and normal way of saying, save the life. It shouldn't be translated soul. You will save his life from death. Now listen, there is no text, none, not a zip, zero, in the Greek Bible where it can be shown to have the meaning to save the soul from eternal wrath. It's not what it means. Saving from death. The theme of the book of James, all right, now we got some idea that maybe James is using sozo here, save, different than we've been thinking. That would help solve some of the problem. 
Let's look at the theme of the book of James. It's found in James 1.21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Okay? Again, sozentensuke in the Greek. The normal way of saying save your life. Listen, he's telling believers, believers, get that sin out of your life. Receive with meekness the word that has already been implanted within you. That word is able to deliver you from death. James is writing to Christians. He is telling them that they can save their lives, their physical lives. They're already Christians. He can save their physical life from the damage that sin brings if you walk in holiness. He's already warned them of the death-dealing consequence of sin in chapter 1. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Let me say a word here about this. Who's tempting us in this text? Satan? You see Satan in there? What, what, what does it say? His own desire. Now there's preterists out there who are teaching today, well listen, Satan is in the lake of fire, but he's still running things. I'm like, dude, what's a, what is the meaning of the lake of fire? Where he'll be tormented day and night, forever and ever, but he's still there running things. People, you don't need Satan to be evil. Okay? If you think you need Satan to be evil, you think too much of you. Okay? Because every man is drawn away by his own desires. Our heart is evil above all things. Jeremiah said, desperately wicked. Who can know it? And God looks at man and He says, the imagination of his heart is only sin continually. All right, that was extra. That's not part of this series. All right, let's go on. But each person is tempted when he is enticed by his own desire. And then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. See, you you start with the desire, it leads to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Again, listen, James is writing to believers. In verse 21, he suggests the antidote to the kind of consequences spoken of in verse 15 is the life-saving capacity of God's Word. Listen, this theme is repeated frequently throughout the Proverbs. Whoever is steadfast in righteousness will live, but whoever pursues evil will die. In James 1, 21-25, James says that his readers will be saved from the destruction that sin brings if they are doers rather than hearers of the Word of God. And in 2.14-26, he says they will be saved in the same sense, not by what they believe, but by what they do about what they believe. Alright, so James, the problem with James is we have his subject wrong. James is writing to Christians, and James is telling Christians, sin will destroy your life. Anybody want to give testimony to that fact? Huh? Yes, everybody should be able to give testimony to that fact. Sin is destructive. It will destroy you as a Christian. 
And James is trying to warn these believers, don't, don't let it take your life. And it doesn't have to mean literally physical death. It can take your life in the sense that you just are miserable, all right? The reason that James 2.14 seems to be contradicting the doctrine of justification by faith alone is because we've missed the subject. He's not talking about eternal life. James is writing about the preservation of temporal life. He's writing about the damage that sin brings into the life of a believer. And people, I could give you a list of testimonies from anybody who has walked with the Lord at all about the damage the sin brings. Okay? Look at James 2, 12 through 14. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. He's writing to Christians. He says, you guys need to be careful how you talk. Be careful what you do because you're going to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment, he says, is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. And then look at the next verse. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but he doesn't have works? In other words... He's not living the Christian life. Can that faith save him? Save him from what? Save him from judgment. Judgment is without mercy. And then he says, that, then he says can he save him? So the salvation is, is attached here to the judgment. James is asking, does the fact that you're a believer save you from temporal judgment? No, it does not. If you live in sin... Your faith won't save you. His question demands a negative answer. And we saw last week the idea of temporal judgment in the life of a believer. We look briefly at Matthew 18, the parable. The unforgiving steward. He was saved. God forgave him all his debt, but he wouldn't forgive another brother. So what did God do with that believer who wouldn't forgive a brother? What did God do with the believer who was living in sin? It says He turned him over to the torturers. I know what that means. I know firsthand what that means. Okay? I know the judgment that God brings on sin in the life of a believer. I've experienced it. And I think we need to understand that. We get this idea that I'm saved by grace through faith. I can do whatever I want. Yes, you can. And you can pay for it also. Sin has a payday, people. And it's a, it's a horrible taskmaster. But people say, well, we're saved by grace. Does it matter how we live? Absolutely. God brings temporal judgment on those believers who do not live out the principles of their faith. If your faith doesn't work, if you don't live out the teachings of Christ, you'll suffer because of it, as a believer. Now, the solution to the problem of James 2.14 is to simply understand the correct subject. No text can be read correctly when the writer's real subject is not perceived. James' subject is not deliverance from... His subject is deliverance from temporal judgment. Physical preservation. It's not eternal redemption. That's not what James is talking about. He's already made perfectly clear that eternal life is a gift of God's sovereign choice. So we just get the subject right, we're going to be better off. Now someone is bound to be thinking... Are you trying to tell me that for all these centuries, the Christian church has missed this meaning of this passage? Yep. 
Uh, you consider yourself a Protestant? If you consider yourself a Protestant, would you have discouraged Luther or Calvin? That guy's 1,600 years the church has been doing fine with his doctrine. What do you come along and say now it's only by faith? I mean, we couldn't have had it wrong for 1,600 years, could we? Emperor Charles V said of Luther at the Diet of Worms, a single friar who goes counter to all Christianity for a thousand years must be wrong. No, he was wrong. They were right. They were straightening out the mess the church was in. And the greatest conviction of the Reformation was the supremacy of an appeal to Scripture over the tradition of the church. And we need to stand in the fundamental principle of the Reformation, sola scriptura, the Scriptures alone. The way I see it, we have two options. We either see James opposing Paul and denying sola fide, or we see a subject as different. As I've already said, every time I talk to somebody about the fact that salvation is by grace alone, what about James? This is one chapter everybody knows. Okay? Which I'm glad. I'm glad they, it's in the Bible. I'm glad they know it, but we don't understand it. It's not too strong to say that the misreading of James 2, 14-26, is one of the most tragic interpretive blunders in the history of the church. Because it's a misreading of this text that has caused believers to encourage people to find assurance in their good works. We tell them, if you don't live a holy life, you must not be saved. And see, the thing is, holy to one person is different than somebody else. We talked before, I told you, to me, when I was lordship, holy meant you don't use cuss words. If you cussed, I wrote you off as a Christian. You are not saved. You better be glad I'm not God. If good works are really a condition or an essential fruit of salvation then I can never really be sure of my salvation. I'll never have assurance. Because how do I know I'm not going to quit working? An insistence on the necessity of works undermines assurance and postpones it logically until death. I've got to work right up to the end. I read a letter earlier um, that I received this week, an email from a guy who was Church of Christ. Former Church of Christ. He was writing to thank me for those messages. And he told me a story that just broke my heart. He says, my granddad was Oriole cuss all his life, and near the end of his life, he trusted Christ. Came to faith in Christ. He went out, bought himself a suit, got ready, was scheduled to be baptized at church on Sunday. He was in a car accident and died before Sunday. And his relatives and the Church of Christ people said, sorry, he's not saved. We didn't get them wet. I mean, can you imagine teaching that kind of garbage? That we got to get you and you got to do our baptism the way we do it or it doesn't count. Works, people, will never earn us favor with God. Christ earned us every bit of favor we need through His work. And people, when an end cannot be achieved apart from certain things being done, those things logically become conditions for the end in view. You've got to have works. To add works to faith is to make works essential to salvation. If your assurance is based on your works, then you're not trusting the grace of God. And people, I'm not comfortable trusting my works at all, okay? Well, then what does James mean by dead faith? I mean, what exactly is he trying to tell us? Look at 2.17. 
So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Well, first of all, James 2, 14-26 is the only New Testament passage that speaks of dead faith. And please notice the distinction in James is between dead faith and living faith, not false faith and true faith. That's a big difference. James is clearly teaching that works are necessary for salvation, but by salvation he means preservation of life. He states his argument in verse 14. Can that faith save him? That faith cannot save him, can it? And then he illustrates it in verse 15 through 16. Now look at this. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now here's the thing. The fact that the preservation of life lies at the heart of this illustration is so apparent, right? James is talking about how to preserve your life. Oh, here's somebody, they don't have food, they don't have clothing. What do they need? Food and clothing. They don't need you saying, be warmed and filled. That's useless, okay? Can the fact that a man has correct beliefs and is orthodox save him from the consequences of sin? No. No. That's like giving your best wishes, he says, to a destitute brother or sister when they really need his food and clothing. It's other, utterly fruitless. Neither will your faith do your physical well-being any good if you live in sin. You can believe all the right things, but if you're going to live in sin, you're going to pay for it. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now what are works? What's he talking about here? Boy, if you just left this open, you know, we could get all kinds. Everybody's got their idea what works are that you're supposed to do. But the prior verses tell us the failure was to help the needy, right? Which is what? Love. And I think if we examine the context of chapter 2, we'll see that the works that James is talking about are love. Look at 2.8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you're doing well. Okay? Now, if your faith doesn't produce love, James says it's a dead faith and it's in danger of judgment. See, the moral dynamic of faith is love. Since faith is invisible, you understand that, right? A person's possession of faith is dependent upon what? His verbal testimony alone. But see, people today say, oh no, I can tell if he's saved by By this, this, and this. How do you tell? Well, they don't smoke. They don't drink. They don't chew. They don't run with girls that do. Uh, They live a moral lifestyle. They witness to others about their faith. They give money to the church. They study their Bible. They're sacrificial. And they're a giving person. Is that how you spot faith? Does that sound like a person of faith to you? I just described a Mormon missionary who doesn't believe in the deity of Christ. He doesn't believe in salvation by grace alone, grace alone, and he's under the wrath of God because of his unbelief. But you'd look at him and you go, well, this is a perfect Christian. People, faith is static. What I mean by that is you can't see it. Love is a verb. It's active. In other words, it can only be seen. All right? But without love, James is trying to tell us faith can die. Verse 17 says that if faith is by itself, if there's no love, it is dead. 
Believers, James' argument here is faith and works are connected. It is by works that faith, he says, is made mature. In other words, as we act on what we believe and we live out our Christianity, our faith will grow, our faith will mature. But if we fail to work, if we don't love, our faith can die, James says. And a dead faith, one that is unproductive, will come under the temporal judgment of God. So he's saying, keep your faith alive. Walk in love. Now, beginning at verse 18, James introduces the words of an imaginary objector to his ideas. Now, this is important that you understand what's happening here in this text, okay? Um, These verses, 18 and 19, are an objector. He says, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Both of these verses belong to the objector. The response of James begins in verse 20. Now, the literary format that James using here was familiar in ancient times. This is Greek diatribe. The diatribe was a learned and argumentative form of communication. And the two phrases that we get at the beginning, but someone will say, and do you want to be shown, you foolish person, show us that the diatribe format is being employed here. These two phrases bracket the words of the ejector in verse 18 and 19. Now, in a large majority of the Greek manuscripts of this epistle, we read by instead of apart from. Show me your faith by your works in place of apart from. The literal Greek would read like this. You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith from your works, and I will show you from my works my faith. You believe there is one God? You do well. The demons also believe and tremble. So the objector is saying faith and works are two distinct entities. It's absurd to see a close connection between faith and works. And for the sake of argument, let's say you have faith and I have works. Let's start there. The, the, the arguer is saying here, he's saying you can no more start with what you believe and show it to me in your works than I can start with my works and demonstrate what, what I believe. He says it just doesn't work that way. The impossibility of showing one's faith from one's work is now demonstrated, so the objector thinks, by his illustration. Then he says men and demons both believe the same truth that there's one God, but their faith doesn't produce the same response. Although this article of faith may move a man to do well, if God believes the right things, he does well, it never moves demons to do well. So he's trying to argue that faith and works are connected. All they do is tremble. Faith and works, therefore, have no built-in connection at all. The same creed may produce entirely different kinds of conduct. Faith can be made visible, cannot be made visible by works. Now, Gordon Clark's question here, I think, is an appropriate one. He asks, the text says the devils believed in monotheism. Why can't the difference be between the devils and the Christian be the different proposition believed rather than a psychological element of belief? In other words, the text doesn't say that demons believe in Christ or even that they believe in the Lordship of Christ. Those who use the illustrations of the demons' uh, faith to prove the existence of false intellectual faith that doesn't redeem, they're comparing apples with oranges. All right? Even if demons believe in the truth of the Gospel, they can't be redeemed. Christ didn't die for demons. He became a man. He didn't become a demon to die for demons. He became a man to die for men. Demons cannot be redeemed. That is why they tremble because judgment is certain for them. All right? 
Are faith and works in the Christian daily experience dynamically related? Does faith really die without the sustaining energy of works? Such thought, the objector is saying, are contrary to reality. He maintains there's no visible, verifiable connection between faith and works. They're not really related to one another in the way you're saying they are, James. So don't criticize the vitality of my faith because I don't do such and such a thing. Now, in verses 20 through 26, we have James' reply to the objector. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? That's nuts. Your whole argument's nuts, he says. That faith apart from works is useless or dead? He's just saying you're foolish to make that argument. He says, are you willing to, to know that faith apart from works is useless? In other words, a thing can properly be said to be useless or dead when it fails to respond to its environment. So dead faith would be faith that doesn't respond to the environment that it's in. Look at 1 John 3, 16-18. Hey, we're going to get there someday. It says, but this we know, by this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet he closes up his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? I mean, how, how do you say you love God when you won't help somebody who has a need? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and truth. See, dead faith is a faith that doesn't love. Dead faith says to this person, be warmed and filled. I'll pray for you, brother. Love is action. Love is obedience to God's laws. Dead equals barren or unproductive. He says, useless, it's dead. Now, the Texas Receptus uses the word dead here in verse 20, but a lot of the modern uh, critics generally accept the reading of barren in the same verse here. Now, there's a subtle play on words here in the Greek, though. It's ergon erge, which is works workless. If you don't work, your faith is barren. It's workless. It's worthless. Look what Peter says. This is an important text. 2 Peter 1, 5-8. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Hmm. So we have a faith, we believe, we're going to supplement it with what? With virtue. And virtue with knowledge. Knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. Oh, we're going to substitute, we're going to supplement our faith by love. And he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful. See, he's saying the same thing James is saying. He says, listen, add to your faith. Do, act it out. Live it out. Do love. Because when you do these things, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful. The word ineffective in the Greek was argos. It means often the things of no profit. It's ineffective. It's barren. So to prove his point, James uses the illustration of Abraham now in verses 21 through 24. And if one could not see the dynamic interaction between faith and works and Abraham's famous act of obedience, he says he couldn't see it anywhere. See, Abraham had a living faith because he acted on what he believed. So in verse 21 he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac on the altar? When James says our father, he is not using it as a term that speaks of the Jews' racial tie to Abraham. In the New Covenant, Abraham is only the father of those who believe in Yeshua. All right, 
We want to look at Galatians 3, 7 through 9. James says that Abraham was justified by works. This would have caused people who knew Romans 4 to have paroxysms, okay? Abraham is known as the father of faith. To be justified is to be right with God. Paul taught in Romans 4 that Abraham was justified by faith. Paul makes it clear in Romans 4 that justification is by faith alone. Paul also says in Galatians 3.6, just as Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul says that justification is by grace through faith, and he uses Abraham as his illustration. He quotes Genesis 15.6. James is saying justification is by works. He also uses Abraham, and he also quotes Genesis 15.6. <laughs> How do we reconcile this? I think that the key to understanding this is again, look at 4.2, he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Alright? But not before God. Now the phrase here, not before God, in other words, you cannot be justified by works before God. You can only be justified by God by faith. When you believe the Gospel, the righteousness of God is imputed to you. In Romans 4.3, Paul quotes Genesis 15.6. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. Now when you trust Christ, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you. He says in verse 6, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Counts here means to deposit your account. It's a gift of God's grace. We were all bankrupt. We stood before God with nothing on our account, but God, by a sovereign choice of His will, deposited Christ's righteousness into our account when we believed the Gospel. And He believed Yahweh, and He counted it to Him as righteousness. See, that's how it's always been. Old covenant, new covenant. We're made right with God by grace. He dispenses that grace to us. We respond by believing and are saved. Works are not involved. Now, does James believe this? Yes, he does. In James 2.23, he quotes Genesis 15.6. Well, what then does James mean when he says he's justified by works? Alright, again, we need to Apply a rule here. Determine carefully the meaning of words. James says he was justified when? When does he say he was justified? When he offered Isaac on the altar. Anybody know when that happened in relation to when Abraham believed God in Genesis 15.6? This is 40 years later. Okay? 40 years later. If works are necessary for justification, Abraham went 40 years before he got justified. See, the problem is resolved by understanding that there's another justification, and it's by works. There's a justification before God that's only by faith. There's a justification before men that happens by works. And I think it should be clear that James and Paul are not using the word justified in the same sense. Just as they're not using sozo in the same sense. Determine carefully the meaning of words. James used the word justified in the sense of vindicate. Warren Wiersbe writes this, By faith he was justified before God and his righteousness declared. By works he was justified before men and his righteousness demonstrated. Okay, He trusted God and God declared him righteous. But then when he lived it out, guess what? Men saw his righteousness. Layman Strauss writes this, 
there's one justification before God and one's justification before the world of men. George Manford Gutsky writes this, James uses the word justified with a different emphasis than Paul did. When James writes about justification, he's referring to the experience of a person being made acceptable before God in actual practice. It is one thing to be cleared from all guilt because Jesus died for us. It's another thing to have our way acceptable in the sight of God. I agree with him. I agree. There's a justification before God that only happens by faith. There's a justification that happens when men look at your life and they say, that guy's really living for the Lord. Two kinds of justification. Abraham was justified by faith before God, but he's also justified by works before men. And the only way we can demonstrate our faith before men is by love. Okay, that's it. Galatians 5.6 For in Christ Yeshua neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Please understand that. Your faith works through your loving act. Living faith is demonstrated in love. See, Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis 15, 6. He was justified by works in Genesis 22, 40 years later. Before Isaac's birth, Abraham had nothing to rely on but a promise. God said, I'm going to make of you a great nation. You'll be a father of a multitude, but I don't have any kids. Well, just hang on, you will. In Genesis 22, we see that 40 years later, after he was promised a son, he finally gets a son, and then God says, go kill your son. And Abraham's like, wait a minute. I've been waiting for this son. You promised me an heir. I got him. Now you want me to kill him? Would he act on his faith? Would he obey God? Abraham's faith in the covenant-keeping God was alive, and he acted. This is an incredible act of faith by Abraham. Credible act of love. God made Abraham a very specific promise. Blessing to the whole world through Isaac. Abraham might have thought, you know, I don't know how, how's God going to keep His promise if I kill my son? Abraham looks at his son, you know, he said, Dad, we got the wood, uh, we got, where's the sacrifice? What did Abraham tell him? God will provide a sacrifice. And Abraham had this incredible faith that he believed that if I do kill him, God will raise him from the dead. So he put his son on the altar, he raised the knife to kill him, and God stops him. And he hears this noise and he looks and there's a ram caught in the thicket. So here's a ram with a crown of thorns on its head, picturing the Son of God. Incredible act of faith on Abraham's part. He believed God's promise. Listen, he acted on what he believed. God said it, I'm going to just do what He tells me to do. Okay? I'm going to act on it. See, the word justified can be used in one of two ways. It can mean to declare and treat as righteous. It can also mean to vindicate, to show, or demonstrate as righteous. Paul uses the first, James uses the second. So James is using the word justified to speak of vindication or demonstration of his righteousness. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Here we see that Abraham was justified when he offered Isaac. Now remember, that's 40 years after his justification by faith. And then he goes on to say, you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by works. 
Now, one might conclude from this that the main factor in reaching the goal was works. So this can't be referring to the first use of justification. To declare righteous, works strengthened his faith. Works gave his faith vitality. He says, faith was completed. The word completed here is the idea of matured. See, believers, our faith is matured as we act on it. As we live it out. As clearly as faith has generated obedient activity, so obedient activity generates a richer faith. When you act on what you believe, your faith's going to grow. As you live it out. Now, let me ask you this. Could Abraham believe God and not offered to sacrifice Isaac? Do, 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 do. <laughs> Could, it's not a trick question. Could Abram have believed God and not offered Isaac? Yes, thank you. Listen, you can believe that God sovereignly controls all things. Don't you believe that? Do you believe Romans 8, 28 is true? That God works all things together for good, that those who love God, those are called according to His purpose? Yes, do you believe that? Do you always act on what you believe? Ah, you don't. Every time God sovereignly moves in your life through providence, providence that is nasty, you don't like it at all. Don't you just say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. No, you don't. Well, how come we're so quick to condemn Abraham then? You know, question Abraham. We don't do it. Yes, you can believe God and not act on it. Like Abraham, we too have been accounted righteous before God, yet the original confidence in confidence that we had in God can be expanded and developed by a life of active obedience. When you step out in faith, trusting God for what He's promised, and you just see the world starts to open up, it's like, wow, I'm doing what He said, and look how great it is. Amazing. Follow God, and He blesses you. Verse 23, And the Scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. Listen, Yeshua said in John 15, 14, that you are friends of God when you do what? When you keep His commandments. And I've had a lot of people say, oh, I love God. And I say, not according to the Bible. Because the Bible says, if you love Him, you keep His commandments. I'm not questioning the fact that they are a believer. You can be a believer and not love God. (laughs) Just look around. (laughs) Okay? Now, the shift here, the second person plural, shows that the argument of the imaginary opponent is done. He dropped that. He returns to his point. James never speaks of justification by faith and works. It's either faith or works. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. All right? In verse 24... James is saying that justification by faith is not the only kind of justification there is. James does not say that justification by faith can't exist apart from justification by works. If that was true, it would have been 40 years before Abraham got justified. Now, next, James moves to an illustration of Rahab. Okay? I love this. This is, this is so good. Okay? In the same way, okay, we're talking about Abraham. In the same way, 
Was not also Abraham the prostitute? Would you love to have that written down? Scripture. <laughs> I got on my brain and I'm not... Re- In the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, in this illustration, he returns to the fundamental theme of saving your life from judgment. See, Abraham and Rahab are about as different as people could be, aren't they? One's a Jew, one's a Gentile. One's a man, one's a woman. That's it, no other classes, okay? Uh, One is good, one is evil. One is a God-fearer, one's a pagan. But Rahab was like Abraham and that she acted on what she believed. She acted on it. Let me ask you this. What did Rahab believe? What did Rahab believe? Well, if you look at the text, we should go through Joshua chapter 2 and read the whole thing, but just for time's sake, I'm going to pull a few things out here. I'm, I'm trusting that you know the story. Rahab says, as soon as we heard it, you know, they heard what the children of Israel had already done. They're beating up all these nations, wiping them out. You know, we heard what you did, uh, you know, all king of, you know, we heard all this stuff. And so she said, we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. Why? For Yahweh, your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She uses the covenant name of God here, Yahweh. Your God, Yahweh, your God, He's God. <laughs> That's a pretty incredible... And you know, she's quoted in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 in the Hall of Faith. Okay, obviously she's your God. Hey, we know what your God's doing. We believe him. I believe him. She believed he was God, and by acting on what she believed, she literally, physically saved her life and her family's life. Look at two thirteen. That you will save alive, she says, my father and mother, my brothers and sister, and all who belong to them, and deliver. Our lives from death. Again, James is talking about how to save your life from death. So here's an illustration of Rahab and how she saved her life and her family's life from death. Joshua 6.25 But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day. Now, why was she saved alive? Because she believed in Yahweh, right? No. That's not what the text says. Why did she why was she saved alive? Because she hid the messengers. She would have died with the inhabitants of Jericho believing that God was Yahweh if she had not acted on what she believed. She risked her life to save the spies. The king says, "Hey, we heard these spies come in. We heard they went to your house." And the spies come in town, they go to the prostitute's house first. You know, and she, oh yeah, they were here, but they left. They took off. Go chase them, you'll catch them. I'm like, yeah, thanks for the advice here. You know, I'm the king, I'm running the thing, but I get advice from a prostitute who's telling me how to catch, catch people, you know. But she takes them on the roof and she hides them. People, that's treason. If she'd have got found out, they'd have killed her. She risked her life 
to save these men because she believed their God was Yahweh, the true God. And she knew that they're coming in, Jericho's going down. Let me, let me hide you, we, and you help me out by saving me. Okay. Again, James' illustration, how to preserve physical life. And her belief in God wasn't what saved her. It was acting on what she believed. She did something about it. She risked her life and she hid these spies. That's an act of love. You guys are going to get killed. Let me help you out. What kind of works vindicate faith? Love is the work of faith. And by her love, she saved her own life and the life of her whole family. It was a risk. She took that risk. Faith works through love. James' readers could do the same thing as Abraham and Rahab. They could save their lives if they were committed doers of the Word of God. And so can we. If it was a case of escaping physical death, which sin could so greatly hasten, faith alone is not going to save you. Say, I believe all the things, the truth. I believe Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God. I believe He is I am. I believe He died for my sin. I believe everything right, but I just live the way I want to live. It's going to cost you. Faith is not going to save you from the damaging effects of sin. But faith that works, that lives out the truths, will. You see the connection between faith and works? There is a vital connection. Life preservation is at the core of this whole passage. It's at the core of the book of James. Saving your life Live it out, people. Live the Christian life. And save your physical life. Abraham and Rahab both laid their lives on the line for what they believed. Their love caused them to be willing to sacrifice all for what they believed. Their faith was alive. And James closes his argument with this. For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So James' analogy here is between dead faith and a dead body. Now, if you were to find a dead body, what's one thing you can safely assume? It once was alive, right? I mean, is that a safe assumption, people? Look at a dead body. That thing was never alive. They just pretended to be alive. They said they were alive. They acted alive. People, no one's going to put that stupid argument up. The dead body showed that it once was alive. And if you have a dead faith, it's because that faith was once alive. He's not talking about a fake, false faith here. A faith that was alive, it died. James can conceive of a dead faith as having once been alive. A person's faith, he's saying, like his body can die. And he compares faith to the body and works to the spirit. That kind of seems backwards. Would you put faith with the Spirit and works with the body? That seems to make more sense. But he's trying to say, one's missing. He says, for as. Literally, just as even so. In this analogy, in both cases, if the second member is missing, the result is death. It's death. And James' point is this. Works are actually the key to the vitality of your faith. His point is not that a vital faith is the key to works. When love separates from faith, that faith becomes lifeless and useless. When our faith dies, we lose our fellowship. We come under temporal judgment. 
And we're going to be dealing with this through the whole book of John because it's about having fellowship with God. Abraham's obedience to God was an act of love. Rahab's risking her life was an act of love. Biblical love is defined as obedience to God and sacrificial service to a neighbor. Love is a spirit that keeps faith alive. Now the Corinthians were believers, but they lacked love and they were temporally judged because of it. He says, some of you are sick, some of you are weak, and some of you are dead. Okay? So let me ask you, believers, this morning as we wrap this up, how would you characterize your faith? Is it living or is it dead? Are you a doer of the Word or just a hearer? And to be a doer of the Word, you have to be a reader of the Word. Okay? You constantly read it, you constantly read it, then you live it out. Okay? And if you read through the Bible every year, by the time you get to that same spot next year, you'll have forgot what you learned the year before and it'll be all new to you. I mean, every year I read through it, I'm like, God's putting new stuff in here. This is cool. That's what they mean by the Bible's alive. It's a living book, okay? It'll never get old. A dead faith is in danger of temporal judgment. It's a living faith that preserves the physical life and brings temporal blessings. People, there is no disagreement between Paul and James. None at all. Their subjects are totally different, okay? Both believe eternal life comes from faith in Christ. Both believe acting on what you believe will bring a joyful life, a prolonged physical life, a happy life. It's what Yeshua said, I, come that they, I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. So many Christians don't have an abundant life because to them, their faith is dead. They don't work. They don't act. They don't live it out. There's no love. People were image bearers bearing the image of our God. So when people look at us, they say, oh, that's how God thinks. That's how God acts. That's what God does. And if that's not true in your life, there's a problem. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to spend some time in this text. Lord, I pray that uh, you would open our hearts. I pray that Each person who hears this would be a Berean, Lord, and not take anything I said for granted, but to search it out to see if it's true. Father, it's so encouraging to me, this book of James, because it's just challenging us to live a righteous, holy life. It's warning us of the dangers of sin. What a blessed book, Lord. But sadly, it's been taken as an enemy of grace. Father, thank you. For the truth of your word, teach us by it. May we live it out, Father. May our faith be living. Amen. Okay, people. Questions? Comments? (laughs) Stanley, duck. Duck. (laughs) Oh, my. Yeah, David Carraway just asked me, what about James 2? Uh, okay, I'm starting over. Let me, set this, let me reset this PowerPoint. No, 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 we're going to do it right now. We're going to clear this up. Before. <laughs> James 2, part 2. 
The thing is, people, when you, when you really start at the beginning of James and work your way through, it's, it's just clear. He's warning about sin. He's warning of the dangers. Everything fits together when you start at chapter 2 and work your way through. You know, the warning of judgment. You know, this is, you're supposed to love. And then, you know, it, it, your faith's not going to save you from this judgment because you're not living it out. And, yeah, just all of a sudden now we can keep our Bible intact. Um, I saw something this week called the Perforated Bible. Perforated Bible. So if the part you didn't like, you just tear it out. What a great idea. Boy, I'd like to see what the end results with that would be, you know. All right, anybody else? Questions, comments? St- Stanley? I don't know if you mentioned this, uh, but it also strengthens our faith as we work, you know, do acts of Absolutely. That, you know, that's what, yeah, I did say that. Living your faith will strengthen your faith. You know, because you look and you say, well, God took me through that. You know, I'm going to keep trusting Him. You know, and you go through this and you learn and you go through that and you learn and you keep on making progress. You know? But, you know, God wants us to love. Okay? That's it. Bottom line, when they came to Him, they said, Lord, Lord, what's the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself on this, the whole Law and the prophets is built. Love God, love your neighbor. That's not eat hard, right? Piece of cake. All right? And you know, the sad thing is, people, I see so many Christians living in torment and misery because they're not following the biblical principles. It costs. It's a payday. Okay, you're kind of quiet out there on the internet. I guess no questions. That's either good, and I cleared up all the questions, or it's bad, and I was so confusing, you don't have a clue even what question to ask. So I'm going to take the former and say, I cleared it all up. Good. Okay, remember, no more what about James, okay? James has a different subject. Now now we'll point you to this message, okay? So this, this will be it when the question does get asked, and I'm sure it will. What about James? Okay, let's uh, get the band down here and let's close by singing in Christ alone. People, this is how salvation works. It's all about Christ. It's all in Him. He has provided all.